Alrighty, good morning church. It's really good to see you again and a tremendous privilege to be able to share God's word with you briefly this morning. Acts chapter 4 is where we'll be and so if you have your own Bibles with you, that's where you can turn in the meanwhile. We're in a series called Reviving Love where we've been focusing on the first few chapters of the book of Acts. We've been studying what it looked like when God did a remarkable work in the lives of the earliest believers. And we've been asking just humbly, but full of faith, oh Lord, would you do it again in and amongst our people? Would you do it again in our generation? Would you do it again in our church and in the churches in our city? Now we know that we cannot manufacture or create God's renewing and reviving work. Only God can do that. But we know that we need it, right, for our souls. And what we've been seeing from our study so far is that there are certain ingredients that seem to prepare communities of people for God's renewing work. And so we've looked at some of those over the last few weeks. Firstly, we said uh, uh, in preparation, what you need is a people who are filled with the Spirit, who are dependent on the Holy Spirit of God to indwell them and empower them with a supernatural power that they didn't themselves possess. Uh, we said as a result of that, you need a people who are devoted to prayer, a people who know that they are weak and that God is strong, um, a, a people who go to God regularly and say, you are God, but I am not, and so therefore I come to you in humility and in certainty that you're a good and powerful God. Uh, we said in the third week that, that you need a people who run to repentance as a grace, who, who enjoy repentance, <laughs> who enjoy the opportunity of displaying the mercy of God by going to him again and again and saying, you are right, I am wrong, have mercy on me. And people who by faith do that frequently, believing that that mercy is new every morning and that it never runs out and that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast mercy for those who fear him. And then last week we looked at, uh, you need a people who live their lives in sacrificial community. Christianity is never supposed to have been a solo sport, right? It's never supposed to be individualistic. It, it applies to individuals, but it's supposed to be lived out in a community of people who follow the way of Jesus Together. And so much of that is countercultural to even what we've created today in church communities. But we see God's reviving work in people who say, No, no, I want to live a different way. Uh, I want to share this faith with a community in a different way. And so today we're going to look at the natural outflow then of those kind of communities. Um, today we're going to look at what it looks like to be a people who are renewed in boldness when it comes to sharing the gospel with people who don't yet believe it, are people who share the message of Christ with, with others and, and who do so joyfully and freely um, and regularly. Now I know just the introduction of that topic will set up a couple of different responses in the room. I know that some of you, um, the extroverts, uh, Andy Campman mainly, um, are super excited right now. You're like, yeah, we get to go tell them, right, let's go, finally, hyped up. Um, you're insane, and, and I enjoy you, right? Um, but I also know some of you are more like me, introverts, and you're like, oh, no, this could have been a sleeping morning, right? This is, this is not the one that I'm going to enjoy, and so you're super nervous, squirreling in your seat right now. I used to get really nervous when listening to sermons like this. Uh, and maybe that's because I actually have a bit of a complicated history with personal evangelism and what it looks like. You see, I grew up being taught street evangelism. Uh, I grew up with that modeled in my home and in my family. Here, here is a picture of my grandfather preaching on the streets of downtown Johannesburg, right? Uh, many decades ago. He was so fiery, 
He was so passionate. He was so gifted. And he also had um, pretty awesome shorts, right, and socks. Uh, I, I got saved like 76 times listening to this guy, right? So every time he was like, you want to be saved? I'm like, yeah, again, count me in, right? He was just so convinced. He got, he got radically, so radically saved by the message of Jesus Christ. His life was totally transformed. You know when you hear those testimonies of someone who was really walking the life of death and then choose the life of following uh, Jesus Christ and they're so transformed they just cannot help but share. That was my grandpa, David uh, Lester. And then in the church that I grew up in, right, when I, when I was a kid, we had regular door-to-door evangelism as a natural outflow of the church, right? And see, like, I'm glad I wasn't part of that church. Like, yeah, well, I, I was. And so I used to go with my dad into a, a pretty challenging inner-city neighborhood in Johannesburg. And I had a little clip-on red tie um, that I used to put on because you can't share the gospel if you're not tied up, right? And so um, I, I would walk boldly with my dad and we'd knock on doors, door-to-door, and share the good news of the love of Jesus with anyone who would listen. And we encountered some crazy stuff, right? I learned lots of new words um, for my vocabulary um, from some of the responses. Uh, We had lots of doors slammed in our face. We had lots of threats of physical violence made towards us. We walked in on a domestic dispute that had got violent at one point, and so I had to get involved in that. I learned that people uh, drank quite a lot on Sunday afternoons um, because the the prospect of Monday morning um, was quite daunting, and I I empathize with that now that I'm an adult. Um, And we had some quite incredible gospel conversations, right? Now, some of the pushback we received was persecution, to be sure, and some of it, in hindsight, I go like, well, how would I respond if someone knocked on my door at 3 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon while I'm trying to watch the game, right, and be a little buzzed before Monday morning uh, rolls around and they come share their religious ideas with me? What kind of reception would they receive, you know? What, what did I expect? And yet, God used it, and we saw um, quite a number of people come to Christ and become part of that church community. Then at some point, I lost my nerve evangelistically, right? And maybe even lost my belief that this was the most effective way of doing it. And I still have lots of questions about that. Is this, is this what I want you guys to do, to leave this place and go beat down doors and say, hey, you know about Jesus? Because otherwise there's this place called hell and it's forever, it's super hot, it's bad, don't go there, um, come be part of our church, right? And then you too get to go knock on doors and tell people the same message. But I started to become convicted as a young preacher because I realized there were some major tensions in my spirit. I realized that I was actually quite good. Uh, I mean, not great, but quite good at sharing the gospel boldly with hundreds of strangers from the pulpit. But I was very poor at doing it with neighbors and friends and even family members. And so today, the text is going to be talking to me as much as anybody else. The, The Spirit has called me to greater boldness in sharing the gospel with people around me. And I believe he's calling all of us to that as well. Friends, just think about this for a second. It is a mystery of God's sovereignty that he invites us into the process of the gospel awakening somebody's heart. Have you ever considered, he saves people on his own, right? He doesn't need us, but he invites us to participate in this great adventure and to make our life meaningful by connecting people's stories to the story of Jesus. The Spirit does all of the work, all of the heavy lifting, but He still chooses to allow us into the great mystery of opening our mouths and speaking the truth of His love and getting to see His work as some people respond. And so if we don't do this, we're actually missing out on a lot of the great adventure of the Christian life when we we fail to share 
the good news. And so today, here's what we're gonna do. It's gonna take a little while, I'm sorry, I haven't preached in a bit, so I've got a lot of words stored up. But, but, but I wanna walk you through an almost, an, almost the entire chapter of Acts chapter four. It's so cool, it's such a great story, and it really happened in the life of the early church. And then I'll make some summary observations about true Christian boldness at the end, and then I wanna get really, really, really practical with some ways that I think we can tangibly live this out in the midst of our lives. All right, Acts four. What's happened just before this text is that Peter and John have experienced the miraculous healing at the gates of the temple. I don't know if you guys sang this in Sunday school as kids when you were here. Silver and gold have I none, said he, but such as I have, give, me, give I unto thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, right? That's the story uh, that had happened that I learned as a young kid. So they, they, they heal this, the, this cripple at the gate to the temple. He's been crippled for 40 years. He can suddenly walk and leap and praise God, the text tells us. And this causes a stir, and so Peter grabbed the moment and he preaches this powerful short message about who Jesus is and how salvation was to be found in him, and 5,000 people get saved, and the religious leaders get furious, right? So often when there's a radical move of God, people who hold the religious power don't like it at all. We see that again and again, right? So here's what happens, verse one. While they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, which sounds like a rad job, and the Sadducees, confronted them because they were annoyed. Some people are annoyed by the power of the gospel. They tend to be quite religious people um, in the text. They were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And so they seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. They had these religious um, uh, rights and duties where they decided that those, uh, those uh, committees couldn't meet um, in the evening. And so they arrest innocent men, right, in order to uphold religious duty, <laughs> which is insane. Um, but many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. They birthed a mega church through a very short sermon. Perhaps there's a lesson there. I don't know. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem. What's interesting about this is it's pretty much the same people who put Jesus on trial. With Annas the high priest, he's like a high priest emeritus, so he's not the functional high priest at this stage. He was the previous high priest, but you get to keep that um, title for life. Caiaphas, the current high priest, John Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, oh look at this, remember week one? Peter's been filled with the Spirit previously, right? He's specially filled with the Spirit at Pentecost, and then look what it says here about Peter again. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, right? He tops him up again, gives him supernatural power and wisdom, and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, look how bold Peter is all of a sudden, and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders which has become the cornerstone, he quotes Psalm 118. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. When they observed the boldness the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. They never went to a rabbinic school, right? These are common fishermen. They were amazed and recognized. What did they recognize out of these ordinary men? 
that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves saying, what shall we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. And so they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking. We are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what has been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old, right? If you're over 40, you realize things don't get better, right? They get significantly worse. And so it's incredible when someone over 40 gets physically better in any way, shape or form. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Now look at this posture. When they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth and the seas and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, and now they quote Psalm 2, why do the Gentiles rage? And the peoples plot futile things. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. That word predestined is very complicated. In the Greek, it means predestined, all right? And now, Lord, <laughs> consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. Consider their threats. The threat's real. And what do you, what do, you do in result? Keep us safe. Keep us in a, a holy roller little huddle here together. Let's just form our own little holy communities. No, no. Consider their threats and then grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. We don't need to be afraid of that. We need to ask God, God, give us the courage to speak and then you do what you alone can do. You do the miraculous, right? But give us the courage to speak boldly. When they had prayed, the place where they assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And look, God answers the prayer and they began to speak the word of God boldly. All right, a few observations. What is true Christian boldness when it comes to sharing the gospel? What does it actually look like? The first observation is this. Sharing boldly in a biblically faithful way, it has a source other than ourselves. It has a, it has a, a, a deep well of inspiration and power that it comes from. Now, I, I love this. Luke is careful to record for us that this isn't in any way a result of awesomeness and pure personal gifting from Peter and John. These are men who abandoned their Lord, right? Uh, Peter actively denied him. We know this. We know they're not hyper-educated. We know from the records of the scriptures, which is one of the reasons I trust them, that, that, that Peter uh, doesn't say particularly profound or erudite things, right? He tends to open his mouth to change feet most of the time, and the scriptures don't hide that from our heroes because they want to point us to the one true hero in Jesus Christ. But look at what it says in verse 8. It says, Peter was filled with 
with the Spirit. It has a source outside of Peter. How has he suddenly become so bold? How has he suddenly become so eloquent? How does he suddenly have such a good handle on the Old Testament scriptures? The Spirit has filled him. But it's not just that. Look again at verse 13. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. Ordinary men doing remarkable, extraordinary, supernatural things. Why? They're filled with the Spirit and they've been with their King. What else would explain the supernatural change in Peter and John? Peter goes from the guy who says, I do not know that man, to now the guy who says, you have to know this man in order to be saved. And you cannot stop me from sharing that message even with the most vile threats. Peter, a few things happens to him. The resurrection becomes real. And so he encounters the resurrected Christ. His three-year discipleship journey with Jesus now starts to bear fruit, right? Now suddenly he sees how the Psalms connect. So he can, he can quote Psalm 118 and connect it to the Messiah. He can quote Psalm 2 and connect it with the Messiah. Why? Jesus taught him day in and day out. This is how the scriptures work. This is who I am. This is how the whole thing fits together. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Friends, before any of you knock on a door, please, please, If we're gonna share the message of Jesus boldly and effectively, then we're gonna need to be people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And listen, we're gonna need to be people who are recognizable as those who have spent time with Jesus. How will we be recognizable as those people? We will be like Him. Merciful, gracious, kind, Bold in speaking truth to power and in speaking truth to those around him, but so gracious and so slow to anger and so gentle. The only way you're going to get that is with time at his feet, so that we might be people of his wisdom and people of his mercy and people of his grace and people of his power. Listen, <laughs> today, maybe, maybe the greatest gift you can give to those around you who don't yet know Jesus is that you would be someone who is soaked in and known for walking in the presence of our Lord. So many of you want to be super bold, but is it an aspiration of yours to be known as someone who has been with Jesus? There's no shortcut. It's formed in the secret place, in time in the scripture, time in the words, time in prayer, time in Christian community. Is that an aspiration of yours? If I were to ask you, what do you want to be known for, right? Your awesome career, great. Your brilliant stick figure family on the back of your enormous SUV, um, great, right? Praise the Lord, I love it, brilliant. Rainforests, they'll take care of themselves, it's fine. Praise the Lord, right? Your family's awesome. Or do you wanna be known as someone who has been with Jesus, right? It's not even an aspiration in most of our lives, and it ought to be, it really ought to be. All right, second observation. Sharing boldly doesn't just have a source, it doesn't just come from the Lord, it also has a scope. Right? Let me explain this. I'm deeply convicted by what Peter and John actually share. 
They are not particularly interested in clever arguments, though they have some, right? We see them using them at some point. We see Paul using very clever arguments in Athens. But here in this moment, Peter and John aren't particularly interested in them. And they don't seem all that interested in societal issues and ills. Though there were many at the time, um, and and there was a time and a place and a manner in in which they addressed those. They also aren't, oh man, help me Lord as a foreigner. They also aren't all that committed to protecting their own liberties, though they had them. This is not the premise of their argument, right? It doesn't mean those don't exist, they do exist. But look at verse two, what are they known for talking about? The the, the religious leaders were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. That's the big issue. Jesus was raised from the dead, you too can be raised from the dead. This is the crux and the core of their message. They are centered on Christ and particularly his resurrection power. Paul will go on to say in 1 Corinthians 15 that this is of first importance in the life of the Christian. When you cut us, this is what we should bleed. When you prod us, this is what we should speak. This should be the first thing, the centrality of Christ. Jesus really died. He really died for our sins, Paul says, in accordance with the scriptures. And he was really raised from the dead on the third day and appeared to many eyewitnesses. That's the big claim. Everything else hinges on that. Everything. Uh, Look again at verse 20. What do they say? We are unable, you can't stop us, right? It just bubbles out of us to stop speaking about what? What we have seen and what we have heard. Jesus changed our life because he was raised from the dead and he saved us. We cannot stop speaking about that. Their sharing of the gospel is rooted in their own experience and the objective reality that they have seen. They aren't relying on external arguments. They cannot help but share what they have seen and heard. Friends, listen. I love apologetics. I studied it for three years at seminary. Apologetics is the the arguments for the faith, right? And you can get super clever with that stuff and it's fascinating. I love sociology, how people groups meet together and what's just and what's unjust. I love studying that stuff. I love being active in that stuff I care about. I love anthropology, the study of what it means to be a person. I'm writing a book about that, we're trying. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. Only my mom will read it and she'll probably only get halfway, right? But, but I even love the cut and thrust occasionally of some political debate. But what really separates me from my unbelieving neighbor is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that I have seen and heard evidence of that resurrection in my own life. That's our great departure between those who believe and those who don't. The other things are secondary. Friends, your own story of Christ's resurrection matters. It matters a lot. And how it intersects with the resurrection of Christ matters the most. I can't help but wonder if we wouldn't have a more effective witness in society if we spoke more about Christ's resurrection than we did about our own particular worldview, politics, socioeconomics, liberties, etc. Of course, listen, before you mail, I, I can see you typing already, right? Of course, Christ's resurrection has implications for all of those things, and they are fascinating and important, of course. But I fear we are more known in the West for some of our positions on those secondary issues then we are known for for people who hold to the remarkable claims of Christ crucified and resurrected from the dead. Let's be known for that first. Right, third one. 
Sharing boldly has clarity. It doesn't just have a source, right? It doesn't just have a scope. It also has clarity. Look again at verse 10. I love Peter in this moment. Imagine preaching like this. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he names him. He's like, look, there's many parts to God. He's like, no, there's one. His name's Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, just in case you're confusing him for another Jesus, whom you crucified, right? He's, he's talking to the most powerful people in his culture. And he's like, you fools did that. It's on you. And whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders. He's now using the scriptures that they know against him, and he's doing it so well. This is the one, guys. Psalm 118 told us he's become the cornerstone. Look what he says, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. That's offensive to modern sensibilities, isn't it? It was offensive to these sensibilities as well. This is part of what gets the church persecuted is they believe that the church is atheist because of their singular position on Christ as the only path for salvation. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we can be saved. Peter is so clear. You crucified Jesus, God raised him from the dead, he is the promised Messiah and the cornerstone of our faith. There is salvation in no one else and no other way to be saved, so don't even go looking for it. Now what's happening here? Is Peter just being a jerk for Jesus? No, he realizes that clarity is actually a kindness. At some point, you actually have to be clear with people. (laughs) This is not permission to just be like a Bible-thumping zealot that no one wants to be friends with. It also doesn't mean that you need to start here in relationships, but we we also mustn't believe that we can sneak the gospel in under some kind of acceptable disguise and that somehow people will actually figure it out. I realized this. I went through kind of like a some kind of deconstruction of faith, I I suspect, in my mid-20s, right? Where I was like, are these the right methods? Is this the right message? And it became super cool in church. And like, no, no, we can offend nobody, guys, and get the message of Jesus in there in a nice polished way, right? And people will just somehow figure it out. Incorrect. The gospel is an offense. It's a stumbling stone, Peter says, right? And there's no way around it. But what is more offensive than the offense of the gospel is to try to disguise it as something that it isn't or to hide it away from people we claim to care about in the name of love, but really sheltered in the robe of cowardice and people pleasing. (laughs) Now I agree, listen, I agree that some of our methods have been unnecessarily divisive and offensive. I cringe sometimes uh, when I hear some of the things that people say in the public sphere. But thinking that we can be fully non-offensive and share the fullness of the gospel is not possible, biblically speaking. Why? The scriptures tell us the cross will be an offense to many. So listen, listen. Let's make sure then that we don't offend people with other secondary things. (laughs) Why? The cross is gonna be offensive enough. Let's be clear about that. Clarity, friends. Pray for boldness, that when those conversations turn in that direction, You'll be clear to say, no, 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 no. What I really believe in is that Jesus of Nazareth died for my sins and that God raised him on the third day and that he is returning for his own and that I'm part of that number. Be clear. You go like, well, that sounds ridiculous. That's what it takes to be a Christian. All right, next one. Sharing boldly has polarizing fruit. There are few people, if any, in the recordings of the early church who seem neutral to the message that they preach. 
people who encounter the early church and go like, yeah, man, it was okay. It's okay. Music was a bit loud, right? The eating Jesus' body thing was pretty weird, but it was okay. It was okay. I liked it. I liked it. They spoke my language. The guy gave announcements. That guy, he got me, right? He uses reference to popular culture, told us it was okay to watch football. I liked that guy, right? People either respond in salvation or in opposition when the gospel is shared clearly in the early church. I love how verse 3 and 4 describe this. They, they say they seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Right? Salvation or opposition. Friends, revival, <laughs> revival is actually birthed time and time again in the midst of what? Fierce opposition to the church. It seems to me that church history details the fact that persecution often grows the church. Comfort reduces our prophetic witness. You know that? Throughout history, the more comfortable the church becomes, the more accepted she becomes in society at large, the weaker her witness becomes. Just go study 2,000 years of church history. It doesn't happen quickly, but it happens in every great movement. Right? I am not suggesting for a second that we now need to go seek out persecution. That would be total folly. I am suggesting that we need to steward our cultural moment <laughs> instead of running in fear. Right? We shouldn't fear persecution when it comes. We shouldn't fear rejection and mockery as long, again, as it is for the right things, the right claims. I've been in the States nearly four years now, but I still feel like I've landed on the moon most days. I love it, it's so fun, right? Your sports are all different, everything's different, food's different, and church and culture is very different. And, and, and I'm just, I'm, I'm, I wanna do this with dignifying us and our movement and our moment. We love being here, right? We love it. But I often hear American Christians start talking about persecution and I'm like, what? Did they saw you in half? When was the last time they lit you on fire? Listen, masks, as contentious as they may be, I understand, right? I don't understand the science. I, I don't, it's not Ross Lester MD, right? It's Ross Lester liberal arts waste of time, right? Like the, that, <laughs> and my parents hard-earned money. That, that's what it says in my email signature, right? Like, so I don't understand the data. Some of you do. Praise the Lord. But masks, whatever they are, are not religious persecution. <laughs> they're, they're just not. A store clerk saying happy holidays, not religious persecution. <laughs> you know, like for the first 1800 years of the church, they never had Christmas, right? So what do we say about them? Being Facebook censured for your political views is many things. It's not religious persecution. It's many other things to be sure in this fascinating discussions. Friends, we have made up some fights because of our own comfort and to be honest, because of the religious boredom that ensues as a result. Share the gospel freely and expect that some will embrace it and many will resist it and then do it again. Lastly, we've still got ground to cover. I'm so sorry. Right. <laughs> Sharing boldly is dependent on God's supernatural power. 
Look quickly at verse 23 again. I just want to read this section again. It's amazing their response. Look how the church responds. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything, right? When they heard this, verse 24, they raised their voices together to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven and the earth. Does it, does it remove their view of God's sovereignty because they're suffering? No, it amplifies their view of God's sovereignty. Oh, you're the only one. You made the sea. You made everything in them. You said your word is true through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, that this would happen, right? Quote Psalm 2 down to verse 27. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, they assembled together against your holy servant. This was in accordance with Psalm 2, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. Oh, And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Look at their posture, friends. In the face of fierce opposition, they don't start Facebook groups, they don't riot, they don't picket, they don't get all mad, right? They don't start their own TV station. What what do they say? Lord, you made everything and you sovereignly reign over everything. Lord, your word is true and reliable and it cannot be stopped. Lord, you rule and you reign even when men sin and you use even their rebellion to unfold some of your glorious purposes across the grand narrative uh, of all time. And so now, Lord, do what only you can do. Do the miraculous and bring miracles and help us just to stay bold to the end. What an example for us. It makes me think of the Apostle Paul in Corinth in Acts 18. I don't have time to read it today. But he encounters massive opposition, and so he starts a church next door, which is hilarious. He gets kicked out of one place, and so he goes next door, right? They're like, get out of here. He's like, I will, right? Next door. Starts the church, right? I'm sure with a loud PA just blaring over their services, right? Uh, but he gets discouraged because he starts to meet some serious opposition to his message and even to his life. And, and, and he's told, you've got to stop, you've got to stop, you've got to stop, Right? But then the Holy Spirit gives him a, a, a vision from the Lord. And, and what does the Lord say to him? Don't stop. Why? There are many in the city who belong to God. You know what's remarkable about that account in Acts 18? There weren't yet many who belonged to God. And so what is the Holy Spirit telling Paul? I got this. I'm working on things you don't even get to see. You just do your bit. I got this. I'm saving my people, Right? What do you think about the future of our city? We're all super nervous, right? While we sit, a, sit around and, and count the equity in our house. Um, but we're, we're, we're super nervous about the change in the dynamics and all of that. I understand. The Lord would say, hey, be bold. And don't stop speaking. Why? There are many in this city who are mine. <laughs> many. I'm doing my I do what I do. You do what you do. What do you do? You share boldly even when you're persecuted. That's what you do. I do the saving work. What a brilliant picture into the life and faith of the early church. All right, sharing boldly. I've taken more than my time already, but I want to get practical with this. It has a source, it has a scope, it has clarity, it has polarizing results, and it's dependent on God's power. So why would so many of us just not do it? Why would so many of us be ashamed if we had to share how it's going in our sharing of the gospel? What prevents us, right? Think a few things. Um, There'd be others to this, but maybe a fear of rejection, right? If you're like me, a bit of a people pleaser, you don't actually like rejection. It doesn't feel good to anybody, right? I remember being a teenager in the faith, but kind of pretty rebellious, and this guy came and played on our cricket team, a guy called Greg. I can't even remember his last name. And he was like on fire for the Lord, and he was like sharing the gospel all the time. 
And you know what it made me do? It made me shrink back, because you know what I saw happened? He wasn't the cool kid. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, so that's what it gets you? No, thank you, all right? Like, uh, I'll just live a life of silent Jesus-like behavior, except for the speaking part, right? And they'll somehow catch Jesus from me and pursue that route, why, uh, that route why I was afraid of rejection. For some of you, honestly, it's faithlessness in your life. We don't share the gospel because we don't actually believe in or experience personally the gospel's truth, value, and power. What was true about the early church? They couldn't stop speaking. Why? They saw the value. Have you met someone who's just encountered something new and wonderful? They can't stop speaking about it. I love watching newly engaged couples, right? They are so annoying and so wonderful. Why? All they can speak about is being engaged and the upcoming wedding that you're like, can I just get you already so we can stop talking about your napkin selection? But uh, they're just so excited. This is new and wonderful. I can't help but share. How many of us are like that with the gospel? We've actually grown a bit faithless in terms of its value to ourselves. And so we think, well, it won't be valuable to someone else. Some of us don't share because of guilt and shame. We're ashamed of our own sin or we're ashamed of the sins of God's people. Like the church doesn't have a great reputation, right? And so we wanna just go like, well, we're not like them. But we're supposed to be with them in this community, right? Some of you have a faulty ecclesiology or a view of the church. The seeker movement of the 80s and 90s and early 2000s didn't do us any favor. I understood its missional impulse, but we discipled you guys to believe that this is how evangelism works. You bring them, I tell them. No, but God births gifts in the whole body, right? He gives you your own story, puts you in your own neighborhood, in your own school, in your own workplace, sovereignly appointing you to be there as an ambassador for him. I can't walk into Google downtown and share the gospel. I mean, I could, but I would be arrested, right? And that wouldn't be religious persecution. That would be trespassing. But you get to go in because you've got the little name tag, right? And you work there. Why are you God's ambassador? Lastly, perhaps, we've experienced a Christian ghettoization. We've been too good at it. And so when you start to think about, okay, who can I share the gospel with who doesn't believe? You go like, who do I know who doesn't believe? Because we've set up these own little Christian ghettos, Right? Our own little Christian entertainment industries, our own Christian education sectors, our own Christian neighborhoods and networks and businesses. Now, now there's value to all of those things. That's not a critique of any single one of those things. I know many of you are passionate about them. But what can happen is if we're not thoughtful and careful is that that can set up a posture of us versus them. Trying to protect us in here against them out there, which is the opposite of the posture of the early church. The posture of trying to extend the blessing of the kingdom to include the thems (laughs) in our life. Okay, so what do we do? Man, I've used so much time. The danger of a sermon like this is that it makes you crippled with guilt and inadequacy, and so you do nothing, or it stirs nothing but zeal in you, and that zeal isn't established on wisdom, and so you go out and you go bananas, and it actually isn't helpful. What is there for most of us to do who don't have a pulpit? Because you can read this text and go like, well, it's easy for Peter, right? He just stands up and preaches because that's what people expect him to do. It's easy for us that you're paid to do this. Uh, The most of us are living kind of quiet, suburban lives. Uh, How do we use those lives um, uh, to to, to boldly proclaim proclaim the good news 
of the gospel. Well, a few years ago, Sue and I bought a house in Johannesburg, um, and we wanted it to be a place of good news sharing to those who didn't know God. Part of the reason for buying the house is we're like, okay, Lord, appoint us as ambassadors to this neighborhood and, and, and help us to represent you well. And we looked for practical ways to do that, and we came across the strategy, as cheesy as it is, that really, really helped us, right? It helped us to live with missional boldness where we were, and it was great. I'm sad to say that we have largely failed to implement it here in Austin, but we're about to change that, right? And it's just based off um, the word bless. And it came to me from the Ferguson brothers out of of Chicago, who are really good at taking complex ideas and making them um, really uh, implementable and quite cheesy at the same time, right? But if we just take the word bless and just look at that as reminders, for most of you in your ordinary everyday life, where you work, where you go to school, where you drive every day, um, where you do your daily walks, whatever it is, just think bless. First one, be prayerful. Be prayerful. Thank the Lord that you are where you are, that your story is what it is, that he has placed you as an ambassador. And then pray for people by name who don't know God. And pray for opportunities to share the good news of the gospel with them. My daily kind of prayer journal, it's just filled with names, right? I just write first names in case someone ever finds my life interesting after I'm dead, which is highly unlikely. Um, But just kind of first names as the Spirit brings them to mind. People I've been praying for for years. Pray for your neighborhood, your workplace, your parents sitting with you in the car line, people sitting stationary with you on 360. Pray for your family. Pray for boldness of God. Be prayerful. Soon I'll walk our little black lab Josie every day and now as we go around the neighborhood, I'm praying. I don't know the people who live in that house, but Lord, may I? I don't know if they know you, but if they don't, give me opportunity. Lord, bless them. Bring them to an understanding of your son. Give me opportunity to share with them boldly. Secondly, L, listen and learn. Listen to people's stories. Refuse to flatten them out with stereotype. Our church, can we just stop the us and them stuff? Listen to people. Learn their stories. Learn the idols of the community around you. Learn the false worship of your city and of your neighborhood. Listen to the needs and the pains and the sins of people around you. Third one, E. This is, this is one anyone can do. Eat with other people who don't know the Lord. You know, you know what the early church was known for? Hospitality. You know what the meaning of the word hospitality was? You know what elders are supposed to lead us out in hospitality? Food with strangers not awesome dinner parties for the same six friends that's not hospitality that's just hanging out food with strangers is christian hospitality who are you going to eat with man it's hard to hate people over your dinner table it's not impossible trust me but it's hard (laughs) right especially if you've prayed for them you've listened to them now they're three-dimensional people you understand their stories now you get to eat with them christian hospitality is truly countercultural in this moment right Be slow, be deliberate, be purposeful, invite people to eat. When we've done it in our neighborhood, people are like, what? And I think they think I'm inviting them to some kind of multi-level marketing party. And then they're always quite excited to be like, oh, it's just the gospel, I'll take that. I thought I was gonna have to buy something. Um, So, fourth one, if you do that for a living, yay, good for you, okay? Love you, see you, that's your story, be an ambassador, I love it, seriously, brilliant, all right? Fourth one, I'm just (laughs) preempting emails. Fourth one, (laughs) serve, serve. You know what the early church was known for? Service to the poor, to the downtrodden, to the overlooked. Radically serving others that no one else would serve. I love what Peter says, that the people around us should hate our doctrine (laughs) and love our good works. Imagine we were known for that. 
Who are you serving in this city that we have this love-hate relationship with? There's so many needs all around us. Imagine if we're known as servants. Last one, gosh, 45 minutes, I'm sorry. Share. Share, open your mouth. Share your story, see what you have seen and heard. Be explicit, be kind, be clear. You believe that Jesus, Jesus was raised from the dead by God. And your story bears witness to reality. You don't need a more sophisticated argument than that. Share that one and let the Spirit do His work. Okay, that's all I have for us today. What if though, as we close, we imitated the early church and prayed the same prayer that they prayed together, full of faith? So can we do that together today? Out loud, should we pray this prayer of the early church and see what God does? All right, why don't you, why don't you pray it with me? And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Father God, won't you answer that prayer? Won't you move in power amongst your saints? We have no power of our own. I pray even now, Lord, as we sit here, you would bring to mind some people who we love and care for. We don't yet know you. I pray that you would give us a supernatural boldness to openly share the gospel, to not get caught up in the, in the hooks of society, but rather just to share the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead. Lord, that's what I've seen and heard. <laughs> that Jesus is alive and that he's alive in me and that he saved me from my sin and that nothing else could and no one else could. Help me to be a faithful ambassador of that message to the people that you have preordained to be put around me in my life. And I pray that you help the rest of us now be sent out as missionaries to our great city, knowing just one thing, that your son Jesus is our king and that everyone else needs to know him. It's in his name I pray, amen.